Hello and welcome to Bread and Thread, a podcast about food and domestic history. I'm Liz. And I'm Hazel. We are two friends who studied archaeology together and love history um, and making things. And we normally start off by telling each other what we're making. So what are you up to? I have had a very big week. Oh, wow. The the blueberry mead is done. It's beautiful (gasps) and red and it smells amazing. And now it gets to age for several months which it should be ready just in time for the summer solstice, which feels appropriate for blueberry mead. That is perfect timing. Especially since we're probably going to be able to go to a folk thing. (gasps) Oh, mead and merriment. Yeah! And I've also started making a a rag rogue. I actually managed to find hessian because everything is at Berry Market. That's impressive. And it turns out normally when people in in the modern times make a rag rug, they get a special tool. Um, but I didn't know that. But I'm just using like a crochet hook to push things through, and that seems to be working. Okay, I mean that that probably works. I feel like yeah, I think I've seen that. Is it like a rug hook or like a latch hook type thing? There's a few different ones. There's one that's like um, kind of like a a sharp carabiner. Okay. And there's one that um, kind of pulls them through like a big tweezer, and one that is just a giant wooden, like, crochet hook shaped thing. In that case, I'd say crochet hook is, is going to do the job. I mean, it, it has done the job so far. Yeah. I, when this episode goes up, I will tweet a picture of what I've done so far, which is not a lot, but I've done I've done some. That's cool. It sounds like the kind of thing that takes a while to build up. Yeah, it's it's gonna be a very long term project, but that's <laughs> that's what I like doing. Um and I've also been learning Tunisian crochet is the third thing, because I have three things this time. I I love Tunisian crochet. I, I've never done it before. I, I was saving it to learn with someone, and then that someone turned out to be a not very nice person, so I decided to just do it. Mm-hmm. And I've got some leftover self-striping yarn, so I'm just making a big stripey scarf. Awesome. So those are those are my makings. I've been very busy this week. Yeah, that's a productive week. That's well, like well, all the crafts. Non-essential shops reopened, so I went to the market. <laughs> and when I go to the market, I get craft supplies. There is, yeah, for for anyone who like isn't familiar with Berry Market, there is like a legendary yarn craft stall where that has like yeah, they have hundred gram balls of double knit for a pound, and they have like big packs of sort of I don't know if they're end of line or whatever, but they're no, they like, just have they just have like the wholesale packs, and you can buy one of one of the whole ten ball packs, which is probably yeah. why it's so cheap. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, yeah, because most most like gun shops they won't let you buy just like the pack as it is, right? You have to buy them individually. Mm. But, yeah, this place is good. Um, I think it's just called the Wool Stall. If- <laughs> If anyone listening happens to live in Berry and goes there, tell them we sent you. Um, <laughs> nothing will happen, but you know. 
I don't know, they might give us a discount next time. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the nice people that run it might give us a listen. That would be fun. Yeah. Um, oh, I should actually say, hello, people listening, because we have a Tumblr now. Because we have a Tumblr now. Oh, yeah. Hello, Tumblr. <laughs> we're excited to be there. I mean, we've both been there for a while, but now we're there, like, yeah. officially, you know, as a podcast. Yeah, someone, someone reblogged the sort of Hello World type post and said that they were going to download all the episodes to listen to on a cross-country trip. So if that's you, hi, I hope your trip <laughs> is going okay. It's, it sounds like a long trip. You can do it. We believe in you. If you're listening to this one, you're probably mostly there. <laughs> um, you're almost there. Keep going. <laughs> You can do it. So what what have you been up to, Hazel? Um, gosh, what have I been? I finished my rainbow sparkly jacket thing. Um, I will, I don't know if I have any pictures of that, but I'll see if I can put it up. You can because I shall, because um, I used, I, there's like a, a technique where you can make this 3D braid. But it's like it's in a knitted piece um, and it's really cool. So okay. that was fun. Um, I w- yeah, I'll, uh, I got the idea of a blog, so I'll, I'll link to where I found that. Uh, so that was cool. That kind of worked. So that's the first thing I've like, not, not really designed, but put together, <laughs> I guess. It was just like a cocoon style shrug. Um, but it's rainbow yarn and sparkly. So, yeah. I mean, that's two of my favourite things. Uh-huh. It was pretty good. <laughs> um, yeah, it's nice to actually finish a thing for once. <laughs> um, nice to get back to knitting as well, because I haven't done much of that in a while. Um, so, yeah, good times. Um, shall we get on to today's topic? Yes. Um, so it's one that we've been saying we would do for a while and then just not got around to. Um, mostly because there's a lot. Um, it's sumptuary laws. I I am excited for this because th- this is just one of those things that tells you a lot about the mood of the time when it happened. I think. So you say the time when it happened. I have found examples from ancient Greece up to potentially the modern day, depending on how you define sumptuary law. No way. Okay. So how would you define sumptuary law? Um, well, the, the sort of general definition, I would say, is um, laws sort of restraining extravagance. Um, that's the definition you tend to get in legal dictionaries. Okay, so it um, doesn't just apply to clothes. Oh, yeah. Um, like, there is... I, I didn't find a lot of food-based ones, but in 16th century France, um, only members of the royal household could eat turbot. <laughs> I wonder so how enforceable that was. <laughs> it's not just clothes. 
also it, turbots. It is mostly clothes. clothes. Sometimes fish. Clothes and fish. Um, <laughs> I've, I've lost my train of thought. Um, yeah, but there is also, there's an argument that things like prohibition, which is also a thing we're definitely going to do an episode on, um, you can hold me to that, could potentially count as um, a sumptuary law. Like, Ooh. I think there was there was a judge um, when prohibition was being introduced. Um, and also Taft, the president of the United States right before the First World War, um, he called prohibition a sumptuary law. Okay, that's an interesting because one. Because it, like limit- it was limiting something seen as unnecessary or, or in the way people, like prohibitionists, talked about alcohol, excessive. I suppose I can see it that way, but that's more of a limiting it for everyone, right? A traditional sumptuary law, you would think it's limiting it for some people, but other people can have it. Well, it's some people or purposes. Ah, right. Um, Like, there's a similar argument that things like um, you're not allowed to, you know, dress up as a police officer for no reason would can potentially be interpreted as a sumptuary law. Because okay. it's, it's these clothes off or this class of people. Ah, I see. Okay. So it, do- it doesn't just apply to the only rich people can wear this type laws. Mm. Okay. Um, so yeah, the earliest sumptuary law that I could find is from the 7th century BC. Um, wow. Which is the Locrian Code, which is the earliest written Greek law code, which it's kind of wild. Like, I know that we have we do have laws from earlier than that, because we've got things like um, Hammurabi, which is basically a Mesopotamian, um, basically Mesopotamian Human Rights Act. Okay. Which is very cool. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the the Locrian Code um, has things like um, not drinking undiluted wine except for medical purposes. <laughs> um, a freeborn woman may not be accompanied by more than one female slave unless she is drunk. Which <laughs> okay is is like. <laughs> Right away, one of my favourite things that we've ever mentioned in this podcast. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't that kind of go against the not diluting wine one? Because you'd, you'd have to drink a lot of diluted wine to get drunk enough you need two people to hold you up. Ah, but there are other things you can drink, aren't there? Uh, okay. But I mean, there, there was a whole thing about how, yeah, Athenians thinking that some other groups were horrible and un- uncultured because they drank undiluted wine and got drunk and that was awful. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also mentions um, not wearing gold jewellery unless you're a courtesan. Ooh. And a man not wearing a gold-studded ring 
unless he is bent upon prostitution or adultery. Um, <laughs> is how it's translated in this in the version I've got here. <laughs> so, gold jewelry shows that you're up to something. Okay, <laughs> I like that. It's they're going well past like oh it's a bit tacky there that's just like anyone who's wearing gold jewelry is bent on vice um then in ancient rome we've got i think you mentioned in the tarian purple episode that that was basically restricted to um to the poshos um, yeah, pretty much. But I, I don't think that there was necessarily, like, I don't know actually if it was a, a legal thing or not. But um, it, uh, during it was the late as good Roman as Empire, I think. Yeah, mm -hmm. during the late Roman Empire, it was um, sort of made an official thing. Okay. That, um, right. I, but I think pretty much before that, it was like. I, no one else could afford it anyway, so it was kind yeah. of a moot point. But it's basically senators could have a purple stripe, mm -hmm. and the emperor could have gold thread and a purple stripe. Ooh, shiny. Um, yeah, it it is also I think the the first example of um, yeah, some tree laws for. I guess you could argue for the greater good rather than just for putting people down. Because mm -hmm. um, there, there were heavy restrictions on who could wear silk because it was incredibly expensive to import. <laughs> uh, that doesn't surprise me. Um, which brings me to East Asia. Mm -hmm. So... Um, I think it seems like Confucius was a big influence on sumptuary laws in China and later in Japan. Um, so you have things like in 14th century China, things on sizes of graves. Oh. Depending on your status. Um, but yeah, there were. Adherence was varied. Okay. I imagine it's quite hard to prosecute someone for not adhering to the the grave size sumptuary law after they're dead. I mean, I would assume you'd prosecute the family. <laughs> is, yeah. Is my hot take. <laughs> um, but yeah, you have sumptuary laws in... Tokugawa, Japan, are where it gets really wild. Um, so that's um, the period 1603 to 1868. Um, my Japanese history is not great, but this that's what the internet said was the dates. Um, so earlier on in the period, you have very specific rules like, um, yeah, Farmers could only wear two kinds of fabric. Um, couldn't wear silk even if they were silk farmers. Oh. Um, can't That's have purple or plum or crimson clothing. 
mm-hmm. or stripes or patterns or anything like that if you're a farmer. Okay. Um, to the point that apparently people returning to the country from business in town had to re-dye fabric so that it would adhere to the laws. <laughs> Which is just... That's... That's a level. Yeah, that's... that That's a lot to, um... To try and keep to. Um... Then later on there's a lot of, um... A lot more laws introduced more generally in t- in cities, like um, servants not to wear swords, mm-hmm. um, and there was just a lot of just very precise century laws, which um, is more in the line of putting th- putting people down, I think, because there's a, there's a speculation that it's because the merchant and farmer classes started getting richer than the samurai and the ruling class who basically went but but we're the important ones so now you can't have gold on your house (laughs) okay that i mean that's a familiar story i think like isn't that the reason for a lot of sumptuary laws like it reminds me a lot, I think, actually, of um this is way off topic, but yeah. Um the thing you you got of spices being of this very rich, luxurious thing in Western Europe, and then they start to get more affordable and then all the rich people go, actually they're tacky. <laughs> feel like that is a never-ending cycle it really is mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah so yeah some true laws basically fell apart um once japan sort of opened up to trade more i imagine like if the purchasing power is there and there's a lot of new goods like coming in, it's very difficult to stop people. Yeah, and I mean, you've also got the point where once the country's opening up more, there's just, um, you know, the ruling class have less control. Mm hmm. Um, yeah, so while in Japan they weren't allowed to put gold on their houses unless they were of the ruling class. In England, Wales, and the Channel Islands, we have licenses to crenellate. Ah. So, do you know what crenellations are? Uh, I do. Like, I, so I believe they are those kind of fiddly bits on the top of castles, right? Yeah, the, the sticky, sort of, the sticky the up square bits. square bits on the top of the walls. Yeah. Um... So, between the 12th and 16th centuries, you could only crenellate your home by permission of the king. 
So I didn't know about that, but I didn't realize it was like a sumptuary law, like it was based on like status. Well, I, I'm classing it as a sumptuary law because it is, you know, if your home is crenellated, that implies you are powerful because it's it's a defensive structure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, they, they seem to have gone in more on actually enforcing the licenses. Um, um, they seem to have started being a lot stricter with the concept after um, the anarchy, which is one of my favourite periods of English history. Um, basically... A civil war. England has had a lot of civil wars, but we don't call most of them civil wars, so we can just say, yes, we definitely just had the one. Um, <laughs> so the anarchy was basically either this, either the king, the late king's daughter is king, or her cousin is king. We don't really know. Let's fight for 15 years. Um, yeah, it seems to be basically, okay, the king is dead, whoever succeeds him is whoever can fight the best. <laughs> I mean, there's there's a whole lot of drama and mm-hmm. oath-breaking. I'm firmly on the side of Matilda. <laughs> <laughs> but during, during the anarchy, um, there was a significant uptake, uptick in the building of um, what was what is called adulterine castles. The what now? Adulterine. Um, what? Which is basically castles built without the permission of the crown. Ah, okay. Which, honestly, I don't really blame them, because it's like, who is the crown right now? And also, everyone's attacking each other. Yeah, I mean, it is literally called the anarchy. Like, I'm gonna want a fortified house. Yeah, if if I was living during a time called the Anarchy and I could afford it, I would be crenellating all over the shop. I'd just crenellate everything. Crenellate my house, crenellate my animal pens, I'm going to crenellate my shoes. <laughs> that would be a look. <laughs> Definitely crenellate my hat. I mean, some crown designs are basically that. <laughs> I'm going to have to look up the etymology of crenellation now, because I bet it is making it look like a crown. No, unrelated. It just means oh. notched. Okay. Sorry, brief etymology break, because Liz likes etymology. <laughs> um, so yeah, some sumptuary laws also have a religious basis. Um, like, there, there are sumptuary laws found in the Quran and the um, the Hadith. Um, which is basically an Islamic legal text. Okay. Um, so things like um, not wearing silk or things that, or very, very long clothes, which are a sign of excessive pride. Um, it's also where ideas about covering hair come from. Mm-hmm. Is, um, co- comes under a sumptuary law because it's the idea of excess and showing pride rather than just wearing clothes. Okay. 
Would would the thing about not wearing mixed fibers in the Bible come under that? Um, I don't know enough about the origin of that to say either way. Um, okay, neither do I. So <laughs> I, I have I have seen people who know about fabric saying that it makes things easier. Mm-hmm. Not wearing mixed fibers when you've just got natural fibers because of different requirements for actually looking after the fiber. But again, I am not a biblical scholar. <laughs> Certainly not a Leviticus okay. scholar. I've read Leviticus <laughs> exactly twice in my life, and I didn't really understand it either time. But things like um, traditionally the prohibition on eating meats or dairy products during Lent, would that count as a, a sumptuary law? That could potentially, but again, when religion comes into it, it becomes very mixed up. Okay. So, like, a law depending on who's observing it, I guess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so you remember our last episode when we were talking about those crazy Lombards? Oh, yes, and, and their wacky clothes. In the 16th century, laws were passed in Milan against low necklines and sables with the heads and feet made of precious metals and jewels. That's oddly specific. Yeah, that's the kind of law where you kind of go, okay, who did this and why? I mean, would would there possibly be like that? That was a trend at the time for some reason. <laughs> like there was a brief fashion, and they were like, "No, nope, no, nope, not allowed, kids these days." I don't know, but they were also banned in Bologna twenty years earlier. <laughs> so I mean, something was going on, it and you know, B- Bologna isn't even Lombard, so. <laughs> I don't know what's happening there. Just like you wonder how many people were walking around with these precious stone-encrusted sables. <laughs> Can't have been that many. Well, I'm going to go with at least two. Once in Bologna and once in Milan. <laughs> Maybe it was the same guy. Mm. Yeah, so there was this... Um priest missionary who was later canonized called Bernardino of Siena and also um, Savonarola in Florence um, at different times but basically again bringing religion into it talking about how all of the these luxuries of dress and of lifestyle were vanity and against God and it's all <laughs> very terrible um, yeah, you've probably heard the heard of the bonfire of the vanities, which was just burning all of this stuff in Florence. Um, I haven't, but that sounds like something that would happen. <laughs> it it took on it took hold less in Siena, possibly because it was a large manufacturer of luxury goods, especially <laughs> fancy clothes. Um, so Bernardino, less successful, but also the one that got to be a saint. So, you know, swings and roundabouts. Yeah. So yeah, you... And the these ideas were exported to the Americas as well. Um, once once Europeans started having, heading over there. So there's 
one of the earliest colonies in the US in uh, Massachusetts. That seems like the kind of thing that you would have thought people would be leaving Europe and going to the Americas to escape, right? Like these I these mean, um, subtree laws keeping <laughs> us down. I mean, you're forgetting that a lot of the very earliest colonists of the US, at least from Britain, were Puritans who thought that Britain was too lax with its religious freedoms during uh, yes. the Tudor and Stuart eras. Um, I forgot about yeah, the extremists. <laughs> these particular ones said that only people who were worth at least £200 could wear lace, gold thread, <laughs> embroidery, ruffles. Those laws didn't Any- last very long. <laughs> Any embroidery. <laughs> Again, Puritans. <laughs> but it's okay if you're rich. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Not entirely sure on, on the logic of being less Puritan if you're rich, but... <laughs> I mean, like I said, it also didn't last that long. (laughs) I can see why. All of those things are things that is very easy to do to your clothes. Yeah. Even if you're not rich. So yeah, that is a a potted history of sumptuary law. There There are other examples which are more... They're sort of things that people pass under sumptuary law, but I, I think come under their own thing, things like um, suppression of native dress and things like that, mm-hmm. which you could argue come under it in the, just for, in that um, definition from the beginning, but I think if the purpose of a sumptuary law is restraining luxury and extravagance, saying you're not allowed to dress in a way traditional to your culture, isn't sumptuary laws it's just being colonialists and awful i guess yeah that's less a status thing and more a deliberately like trying to destroy a culture thing yeah especially when you look at um the dress act of 1746 which was a response to the jacobite risings which were basically banning tartan right and and kilts. Hmm, that does lead me on nicely to the local larder, actually. Hello, I'm Mod, I'm Mod Paper from Probably Bad RPG Ideas, and we have a podcast. If you'd like to hear RPG advice on how to use assorted incredibly bad ideas as actual ideas in an actual game, then listen to the Probably Bad podcast, available on pretty much every podcatcher. And remember to have a probably bad day. Do tell. Um, because the, the Jacobite Risings are relevant. Um, oh. Uh, uh, yeah, before oh, I Are do, we by any chance heading to Scotland? Uh, we, we are indeed. <laughs> um, but ha- yeah, how long did that last, banning Tartan? Um, about 40 years. And then George IV got really into the uh, romantic... Highlander aesthetic. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, well, yeah, that does lead me nicely on to today's local larder, um, which is haggis. And I'm very like excited about haggis. it. Yeah, I like. I can't believe we've not done haggis before. I should have done it in January, really, but 
doing it now. <laughs> I mean, haggis is an all-the-time food. Absolutely, yeah. It's a hearty, filling, year-round meal. Um, and I'll get on to why it's related to the Jacobite Rebellion and the banning of tartan in a bit. Um, but first, for those of you who have not had the great fortune to encounter a haggis, um, it is not, as many Scottish people will tell you, a, a like small beast that lives wild on the moors. Um, that <laughs> That is kind of a national joke. But unfortunately... Don't forget that it has... The legs on one side are shorter than on the other, so it can run round and round the hills. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, who am I to say it's not? I can't say they're all lying. I haven't examined every hill in Scotland personally. <laughs> yeah, like, I, I can't disprove it. Uh, but, <laughs> more generally speaking, um, a haggis is a kind of meat pudding. Um, it, and it has this reputation for being like horrible food um, because it's made from offal, which is the parts of an animal that people these days usually don't want to eat, like um, things like the liver, the kidneys, the heart, the lungs. That's um, where all the goodness and flavour is. <laughs> yeah, and historically, the or traditionally, the cheapest bits of meat. Um, which is why we don't tend to eat them these days, really, because, um, well... Speak for uh, yourself. Well, <laughs> I say don't tend to eat them so much in Western Europe, I guess, um, because there are most certainly a lot of like famous dishes from around the world that are still really popular today and include offal. Um, yeah. Uh, so... Haggis is uh, the offal the from a sheep minced up and put into put together with like onions and spices and oats um, and sort of mixed up together and put into uh, the lining of a sheep's stomach and then boiled. So yeah, it's a, it's a pudding. That's what a pudding is. It's a it's a mixture that is put into some kind of like bag and then boiled. I, I was curious what word you were going to go for then. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't sure, but it came to me. Um, so that's what a haggis is. And it's, it's actually quite nice. Um, I mean, even if you don't normally like offal, it's all minced up. So it's, it's not like it, looks weird or anything it just tastes like meat yeah it's just kind of vaguely i guess gamey is how yeah because offal tends to be a little bit more in that direction yeah definitely. and also one time i had uh sorry i had a haggis and brie and rocket ciabatta and it was the best sandwich i've ever had i'm sorry so, what so you know you can fancy it up <laughs> that is that is a completely new sandwich concept to me. <laughs> How did it go with brie? It just does. Okay. Mm. I'll give it a try. <laughs> but yeah, haggis is basically the national dish of Scotland. Um, although 
Okay, if if any Scottish people are listening to this, please don't come for me. I am going to explain why it it is Scottish, but it didn't really start out that way. Um, so uh, there was some controversy in the haggis world in two thousand and nine when a food historian claimed to have found proof that haggis was actually invented in England, um, and. This is because a recipe for haggis or a mention of haggis appears in the 1615 cookbook by Gervais Markham called The English Housewife or Housewife. Um, and it is true that haggis was eaten not just in Scotland, but all over the British Isles and kind of in some form all over the place, really, at the time. Um, but it it doesn't really prove that it was invented in England. Like, it, mm. it's something that was invented kind of everywhere, really. Um, it's just one of those foods that is so old, we don't know where it came from because everyone was eating it. Um, in various... Good. Yeah, it was pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> um, like, it... It's um, it's it's been in different variations. Like uh, apparently the Romans made a kind, a similar kind of thing, um, with like a pig's call where they'd stuff it with like the offal and stuff and and boil it and take it with them. Um, is obviously is it called the the stomach then, or is um, what is a call? I I'm not exactly sure what a call is. Um. Yeah, I I think it's kind of uh Okay, yeah. It's it's like a membrane. <laughs> it's a membrane. Anyway, it's it's okay. like a bag. Um it's always uh, a bag. If yeah. If there's awful in it, it's a bag. <laughs> yeah. Um so they they kind of had a version of it. Um a haggis-like pudding is actually mentioned in the Odyssey, um, oh. in Homer's Odyssey, uh, and that is translated um, in Thomas Hobbes's translation as a haggis. <laughs> um, so it's obviously enough of a thing that he didn't think too much about translating this um, mincemeat-filled pouch as a haggis. So there's a haggis in the Odyssey. <laughs> so just for clarity that's minced meat and not minced meat right minced meat yeah because minced meat is a different thing which doesn't have meat in it. <laughs> these days it doesn't have meat in it that's true um <laughs> yeah so it's yeah pretty much what what it was is um it's cheap nutritious food um and it is mentioned kind of all around the british isles really um it it appears in a few different like writings um from the kind of early modern period um and like we 
we pretty much know that it was being eaten before that because it's it's just like a really simple dish that that makes sense there are some rumors that it was it came from um being out hunting and having to preserve the offal because that's the part that goes off the quickest um so just chopping it up and putting it into the stomach and and boiling it to preserve it so um almost like with humble pie um yeah where you just but... get, get in the the less meat bits um, yeah, pretty much. But but also um, often in hunts, um, while the the lord or whatever was hunting, um, they would take like the the fancy meats, uh, and the offal would be like the perks of the huntsman's job. So like mm. whoever was was assisting them would get to take the offal home. Um, but it's always been really cheap so like haggis haggis is just like a really yeah cheap and nutritious food um, which made it very popular and it was being referred to as a haggis um quite a long time ago um so yeah it's referred to as a haggis in gervais markham's book in 1615 um and it's there's a few rumors about where this name comes from um it's thought that it could be from a norse word that means like to chop or it could be related to a french verb that means like to mince to chop up um and that that one is possible because there was like a historic alliance between scotland and france um like basically <laughs> it it was like a ah, i see you hate the english we also hate the english we should be friends i mean there um, was also a lot of norse influence in scotland though so I, I like that you you can't rule either of them out. Yeah, and they do both sound quite similar, to be honest. Like mm. they both kind of start with hag, so it's like I mean, who knows? It's a haggis now. <laughs> um, like it's it's just a world pudding. <laughs> uh, but the the haggis wasn't particularly associated with Scotland uh, until the after the Jacobite Rebellion really. I mean, it kind of started before then, because Scotland in the late 17th century was kind of in economic decline, whereas England's fortunes were going up, which is what led to the union with England in 1707. Um, yeah, I mean, the, these two facts were also quite related. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, so... Whereas uh, haggis was starting to become less common, still popular food with like the lower classes, but starting to become less common on like say the tables of the middle class in England, um, it was still pretty popular in Scotland. Um, but then after the Jacobite Rebellion, so um, when a a group of supporters of um, the Prince Charlie, I guess. Um, so, like the now, my my Jacobite history of this would, point is not great. So, would, would you like um, me to summarize the Jacobite Rebellion? I did it yeah, for one of my you... folk videos not long ago. <laughs> Excellent. So that is um, is that the son of James the first? Yeah. So James yeah. the James the second is mm -hmm. Catholic. Mm -hmm. uh, people don't like that. But he has a Protestant daughter who's married to 
the king of the Netherlands, William of Orange, who's basically one of the most Protestant kings. So they're like, okay, well, when he dies, we'll just have her and her husband and it'll be fine. Then he has a son, um, Charles, who naturally he decides to raise Catholic. Um, and they go, actually, maybe not, and have what's called the Glorious Revolution, where they basically kicked him out and brought in uh, William and Mary. And, you know, years later, Charles is an adult and is going, you know what, I think I would like to be king, actually, <laughs> and gets the Scots, who are largely Catholic, on his side and has several failed attempts to invade England. Mm-hmm. Um... Yeah, so a series of rebellions trying to bring back um, Charles as king, uh, which none of which succeed. And after this, it basically becomes popular or like fashionable to make fun of Scotland um, in like wealthy English circles. Um, so you get a lot of cartoons and things like portraying. Scottish and especially the Highlanders who were big supporters of the Jacobite rebellions um, as like kind of barbaric haggis eating like underdeveloped people um, and that like there's a few writings of like people being quite sniffy about ha like haggis um, I think that that's like that's kind of when it becomes to be really associated with Scotland. Um, yeah. Um, so just to, because of like the, the ingredients in it as being seen as like a poor, a poor man's dish. Um, and then also like, as you said, um, the banning of tartan, the banning of kilt, like every, anything that's cut like, no being Scottish. Scottish. <laughs> yeah. Anything that would fuel Scottish nationalism is like made fun of or like banned. Um, and that's when it becomes really associated with Scotland. Um, so like the first associations of haggis towards Scotland kind of come from the English really um, in quite a hostile way. But um, Scotland kind of not one to take this lying down, um, just kind of embraces this stereotype of haggis being a Scottish thing and, and is kind of like, uh, but it kind of backfires on them because Scotland kind of turns around and goes, actually, you know what? Yeah, we eat a lot of haggis and we love it. It's great. So like, take that. Um, they kind of embrace this stereotype of haggis being a Scottish thing. Um, and in fact, um, when um, in, in the famous Robert Burns poem, Addressed to a Haggis, written in the late 18th century. Chieftain of the Pudding um, Race. Chieftain of the Pudding Race. Yeah, he like extols the virtues of the haggis. So, I mean, this is still during the time that this kind of English mockery is going on. Um, he extols the virtue of the habit, the, the haggis. Um, and in fact, like just kind of praises it as this manly food, like real men eat haggis. Like you you all with your fricassees and your fine sauces and whatever, it's turning you into wimps. Haggis is like food of the conquerors. Um, 
yeah <laughs> and that's that's really Beautiful. where it becomes um a thing and by the 19th century it's established as pretty much the national dish of scotland and part of this is because of george the fourth's um like craze for for scottish things um makes it fashionable again when he visits scotland um the author sir walter scott um, kind of basically creates a lot of these ideas of of scottish tradition when he serves him haggis at this banquet and there's like tartan everywhere and um yeah that that kind of cements it as the national dish of scotland um and of course now it's uh not only is it still popular today as as like a just thing that you eat um it's also like a crucial part of the burns night celebrations on january 25th um and it's yes probably one of the things scotland is most known for worldwide um and it's really nice so go try some haggis it is try it hot on a tabata with brie and rocket <laughs> it's a french cheese it's the old alliance <laughs> wait where does the ciabatta come from i want to say italy that's just nice bread oh they probably hate the english too they can have a piece <laughs> i mean even the english hate the english at this point <laughs> So, thank you for listening. Um, if you want a special bonus episode just for you, access to the Discord server and recipes which are more complicated than a haggis and brie sandwich, um, you can head over to patreon.com uh, slash bread and thread. Uh, we also have a Twitter at Bread and Thread where you can keep up to date with uh, what's going on and see teasers for the next episodes. Uh, also things that we mentioned during the podcast we might post about on Twitter. And we now have a Tumblr. Uh, is our Tumblr just Bread and Thread? It is indeed. Cool. We have a Tumblr. It's Bread and Thread. Um, we are very excited. Come say hi. Um, and if you want to email us... Um... If you know more about the origin of the restriction on mixed fiber fabrics, we would both be fascinated. Um, <laughs> you can email breadandthreadpodcast at gmail.com. Great, and we will see you next time for more unexpected history. <laughs>